and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today. And with me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Howdy, partner. Today, uh, we are recording episode number 137 of the Malthouse Games Podcast. We are a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, tabletop games, dice games, things of that sort, and beer. And somehow, some way, we don't think we've talked about the two beers we're going to have on this podcast. Even though they're very common and easy to find. And pretty decent, too. What are we starting off with first, Delty Poo? First, we are starting off with Sapporo. Sapporo. This is a beer that is sold a lot in uh, Japanese restaurants and Thai restaurants and OKC Metro. And what is the country of origin, Delty? Is it is it Japanese? It's J- Japanese. It's Japan. Uh, so Sapporo Premium Beer is a 12-fluid-ounce can. Uh, could not tell you the alcohol content. It actually says product of Canada, really? which is hilarious. I always thought it was Japanese beer. So did I. Uh, let me see if I can find any information. It's, it's kind of marketed as one, right? Uh, it says imported by Sapporo Brewing Company in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin, WI? Yeah. Brewed and canned by Sapporo Brewing Company in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Well, learn something new every day. Well, Sapporo is kind of always marketed as a like Japanese beer or an Asian beer. It's at every sushi bar, every Thai restaurant, every Japanese restaurant in the metro that you yes. can think of. So it says Sapporo Premium Beer. Discover the perfectly balanced taste that's irresistible to all as you share rich moments with this masterpiece of the brewer's art. I feel like we're having a, a Mandela effect right now. I think so, which is weird. Well, I think I think part of that, I'm going to Google this while I hand you the... I'm going to give you the one. Do you want the one with the more or the less? I really off-poured this. I want the one with the less, so that way I can have one with the more in our second beer. Okay, I think I can make that happen. Better. So this beer is standard... I'm not going to say American light lager, but it's a lager. It's pretty light. It's crystal clear to look through. You can put your eye up to the glass and see everything. Well, apparently it's a standard Canadian light lager. Yeah, exactly. And so... Smells like your standard, like, kind of over-the-counter. I say over-the-counter. That's all beer. <laughs> That's how I'm going to describe it. You've well, got your prescription, like, craft beer, and then you've got your over-the-counter beer. Well, it works, but Walgreens it's not as good. Walgreens does sell beer, so I'm just saying. I feel like there's a little bit of rice in the grain bill. But then again, so is Coors. Yeah, so is Coors and a lot of that. It's basically a standard American light lager, but that's from Canada and marketed as a Japanese beer. I wouldn't say it's a light lager. It's got more heft to it than most light lagers. Not that it's heavy, but it's not like, doesn't have as much of a watered down taste. It'll get you drunk. As most beers will. But here's the thing. Here's why I think part of it is that we always think it's from Japan is because Sapporo is a city in Hokkaido, the northern region of Japan. Well, that makes sense. And so I, I think that that might be part of it. Let me look up Sapporo beer. This is another on the podcast live. No, no, no. It's the oldest beer brand in Japan. Is it really? Yeah, look. Well, yeah, that is the that is the logo. Wait, no. Look at it. Where's the where's the can? That's the logo. Don't day a stock can. It's the, it's the damn logo. Well, son of a bug. So hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I wonder if it's just easier to have it made in Canada and instead of shipping it in from Japan. Remarkable, where East meets West is so what it, it is says. a Japanese-Canadian-American-style lager. Find it at your local Super Cowman. Did you know, oh, Sapporo Pure is their, like, low-calorie. Oh. Here you go. Here's the history, the making, legendary Biru. 
Sapporo is the oldest beer brand in Japan, founded in 1876. The legend of our beer began with the adventurous, adventurous spirit of Seibei Nakagawa, Japan's first German-trained brewmaster. Okay, that makes sense, because, yeah. Uh, so, kind of running through this without telling you everything. It says Asian beer in America. It made its first way to America in 64. In 84, it was founded to help preserve high standard quality throughout the country. It stands alone as the number one selling Asian beer in the U.S. I bet they brew it in Canada because it's easier to do that. Yeah. Probably a lot cheaper. Sapporo products sold in the U.S. are brewed in the U.S., Canada, and Vietnam. Interesting. That's interesting. Well, there you go. So it is indeed a Japanese beer, and it's fine. It's a good beer for your over-the-counter beer. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I will will drink to this two clinks, Delty. Clink, clink. There you go. Boom. We did it. Zumbo. But yes. There's our first beer for the episode. Nothing too crazy. We were also just kind of digging through the trenches of our fridge and going, where is it? What beer do we have? What do we have left in this thing? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, since the last episode, we had Stupid Movie Day. We did have Stupid Movie Day. Oh my God, that was so much fun. So I know we talked about it last time, but what we did was Delton, Cody, and I, Jimwin was working, we went to Vintage Talk, and the rule was we all had to pick out a movie, and it had to be under 90 minutes, and the rule was it had to be stupid. And guess what I chose? She chose literally the worst thing. <laughs> I got the third in the installment of the Left Behind series. Uh, Kirk Cameron saves our souls in America. I didn't know what the Left Behind series was, but it's exactly what you think it is. It is the... Uh, I almost said the revolution has happened. <laughs> no, it is the rapture. The rapture has happened, but people were left behind. That's the show. Because, okay, there was a series of books that was really popular in the 90s, and all of my friends' moms had them, and basically it was the story of the rapture and everybody who's left behind for seven years whenever there's famine and plague and all that jazz, and they're having to survive. Da, 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 da. So... I picked this because I had to watch the first one as a kid. Not only did we have to watch it, but we had to have a serious conversation with our elders and our parents about the rapture is probably going to happen in our lifetime. What are you doing about it? And so I had like nightmares about the rapture. And nowadays I watch this movie and oh my God, I died laughing. But I got to be the cultural consultant to Jen Wen Ling and explain to her the rapture and all the weird American uh, Christian fundamentalist stuff that was referenced throughout of it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being Christian. There's nothing wrong with being American. But there's a lot wrong with Kirk Cameron. (laughs) There you go. That's the way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so Haley had the worst movie of the day in a bad way. And I had the best movie of the night by actually having a fun movie. He did. He actually picked a really funny movie. So we picked him based off of Haley knew what she was getting into, even without seeing it. I was just really excited. I saw it. I said, I've never seen this third one, but I got I have to. We picked trash movies or at least what we thought were going to be trash movies based on the cover. We didn't watch Cody's movie because we ran out of time. We ran out of time. Jin Wen's movie was a trauma film called Rabid Grannies. And the DVD is so edited to shit that it's so confusing and for as fun as the special effects were, the movie was just so bad. But the main actress added me back on LinkedIn, so now I'm connected. Yeah, one of them did. thought that was really cool. Uh, my movie was a movie from the 80s called Night of the Creeps. The DVD cover looks so stupid and bad. It's such a fun movie, though. And we were all like, this is actually like 
bad in a good way, but it's also <laughs> really just a, just a good eighties cheesy movie. It got real dark sometimes. So there were a couple of uh, allusions to some very dark themes. I'm like, huh. But it was very very fun. So we got to do stupid movie day. Uh, what else did we do? So my sister and I got to finally have our sisters weekend. So we typically go out and have a fancy fancy dress day, have a fancy dress party of our own for our birthday. But so my birthday is in November, hers is in December. In November, I had BGG Con followed by COVID for three weeks. So November was a no go. And then December, I had my surgery followed by the holidays. So December was a no go. So we finally had our little birthday weekend. We dressed in fancy clothes, went and had a fancy lunch, went around the art museum, went and had a very expensive dinner. So for me, very expensive is like 45 bucks. And that's how much mine was. Do you know how much steak costs? Well, to be fair, it's not just steak. It's Wagyu steak at a fancy restaurant. I was like, I was feeling, I, I mean, no no offense to steak eaters. My cauliflower steak in a drink was like 45 bucks for everything. Steak steak dinner was like 130 for my sibling. That was wild. That's a lot of money. That was a lot of money. She said it was worth it. And I, I believe her. I don't believe her. But I believe her. Uh, but mine was really good too. So yeah, we had our, our fancy dress day. Went to the art museum. Got a cauliflower steak. And since then, just kind of been chilling this week. It's been a slow week for me all around. I got to hire uh, a new assistant to help me with education stuff, and she's awesome. So all in all, it's been a good week for me. How about you, Delta Poo? We got to play some games. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. So the game for today is one that the minute I heard the name of it, I was like, Yes, I need this. We must have this. And then whenever I was uh, building up my order through Boardlandia, I got some stuff and put it on customer hold back in December. And then I used a bit of my fun budget money in January to add a couple things and add another couple things and was able to get past that shipping threshold and have it sent to the house. And one of those things is the... Dun, 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 dun. I couldn't find. I couldn't find the lid. Beer and bread. I hit my cymbal and it's back there. I can hear it <laughs> in the background. It, it has a dramatic effect. Uh, so this is Beer and Bread. Beer and Bread is originally from Deep Print Games. In Europe, it is uh, published through Pegasus Spiele. And in the US, it's brought over by Capstone Games. Beer and Bread is designed by Scott Alms. Artwork by Michael Menzel. Development is Victor Kobilka and Peter Eggert. Rulebook and layout is Victor Kobilka, and proofreading is Neil Crowley. Now, Scott Alms, I recognized the name and could not find where I know his name from. He does all the Tiny Epic games. Tiny Epic Galaxies, Tiny Epic Westerns, Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, all that stuff. He has a bunch more than that on his like credits, but those are what I, I personally know most, uh, know his name from most, I should say. So Beer and Bread is a two-player-only game. That is, so Virsen Das Folk that we reviewed a couple episodes back, uh, episode 133, that was a while ago now, um, I guess four episodes ago. Oh, wow. That game, its box is slightly bigger than Patchwork, but about the same size. Beer and Bread is exactly the same size as Patchwork. So identical size box, which is an amazing size box. The game takes about 30 to 45 minutes, and I want to say it took us 45, but being our first play, we were a little slower, I feel like, and I checked a couple things in the rules, but not much. So the theme of the game is essentially, uh, it says, Founded on the fruitful lands of an erstwhile monastery, two villages have held up the dual tradition of brewing beer and baking bread. 
While sharing fields and resources, they still find pride in their friendly rivalry of besting each other's produce. So each of you are one of the villages, and over the course of six years or six rounds, you're going to be trying to make beer and bread and come out basically with the, uh, it's most points, but the points are represented by the coins or the value of the beer and the bread that you've made and sold. So the way the game works, in those six rounds, you're going to have three rounds, which is going to be numbered one, three, and five as fertile, and three rounds, two, four, and six as dry. I think that's the term. Yes, dry years. You have fruitful years and dry years. Uh, all the years are going to work almost identically. You're going to seed the fields to put out the resources you're going to be picking up. You're going to then be uh, trying to look at my rule book here just to make sure of the actual fade phase names. The card phase is where you fill your hand up. You're going to then do actions based on uh, what you use those cards for. And then you're going to have the windmill phase, which is essentially passing, uh, passing the, the first player marker, depending on who has least resources. And the whole, every, every round in the game is going to work that way. It's all going to be the same, but there's a few minor differences. So uh, in this game, in the fertile and in the dry years, you are seeding the fields with resources. The cards that you play are multi-use cards, right? They have a top section that is what you can use to harvest. The middle section is a recipe in which you can make bread or beer with if you have the resources necessary that you can discard out of your storehouse. And then the bottom is actually upgrades to make it better for you for harvesting or more points at the end of the game. Or sometimes it's like trading in two of one thing for one of another. And so these cards are multi-use. Well, in the fertile years, any of the harvesting you do, the fields are going to be more stocked. So there are more goods for you to harvest out of the fields. In the dry phase, there's less goods. So it's going to be harder to get all that you want if your opponent ends up taking it or something like that. The biggest difference, though, is in the fertile, uh, in the fertile years, so rounds uh, one, yeah, one, three, and five, whenever you ha- play a card from your hand, you have a hand of five cards every time, right? You play a card from your hand. You are then, once you both play one, are going to trade hands with each other, so effectively drafting those cards. Then in the dry years, you are no longer drafting those cards. You are going to have your hand of five cards and only that hand, and you're going to be able to, there's three cards on the table that are like trade cards. You'll be able to swap for one of those if you would like. If you're like, hey, that card right there, it's kind of like an open market. You're like, that card's one I want. I'm going to take it and use it for harvest and replace it with a card from my hand. So you're always going to slowly lose numbers from your hand. But whenever you do that, you have to play the card immediately. You can't trade in and stash it in your hand till forever. Correct. Now, the biggest thing that's, uh, that is a big planning thing with this that I like that we didn't quite comprehend until we actually played through the first two years is in the fertile year, when you play a card for harvest, it goes in front of you and you harvest. In the dry year, instead of drawing straight from the deck, You pick up the cards you played from Harvest to your hand, and then you top your hand off up to five, if you don't have five cards, from the deck. So effectively what that means is if there's a recipe that you're wanting to try to fulfill, you can play a card to Harvest, which means you'll be able to pick it up using uh, that card's recipe or the upgrade or Harvest again in the dry phase. It's very interesting, and it actually is a good, uh, it was a really cool, good spot allowing for planning, long-term planning. Because when you're having a hand of five cards and you play a card and then pass it to your opponent and then you're hoping for one to come back and it doesn't, you're like, well, damn it. But this is a way for you to say, I want to make this bread. I'm going to harvest with it, get some goods, 
and then I know I will be able to pick this up next round, and I will be able to hopefully make it if I've harvested correctly. As the kids say, let's get this bread. Yes. So aside from that, like there's a few other small rules uh, that I think are interesting, uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, basically, the biggest one that I think is my favorite is whenever you are harvesting goods. When you play a card down to harvest, let's say you harvest two wheat. Play this card. It says harvest two wheat. You take two wheat from the fields if it's there. Well, then if on your next turn you want to harvest again, and let's say you have a card that harvests one rye and one barley, you play that card down. You're going to get one rye, one barley, and the two wheat again from the card you've already played because you put them in a stack where only the top resources are shown. As long as there's enough resources in the field. As long as there's enough resources in the field, you can take them. Or if you have the upgrade that allows you to take at least one even when empty. And then uh, you also have a limited number of storage space, which is nine spaces from the base. You can upgrade that as well to get more storage spaces. But it's really interesting because it's like you can harvest one good, play another card to harvest again, and you're harvesting that first good as well as the new card. And if you play a third card, you're now harvesting that card plus the other two again. So you can really quickly just amass a bunch of resources to fill up your storehouses. Uh, The good thing is when you do that, you get to choose what to keep in your storehouse. And so that's a really really nice thing that you can swap them around. And then the other thing that we liked, which we'll talk more about, is for the resources you can't keep in your storehouse, you must offer them to your opponent to take, which they can only take if they have room. If they are already full in their storehouse, they just go back to the general supply. So I really, really also liked that rule. I did too, especially whenever it occurred on my turn. <laughs> right? It makes it easy for you. Amen. Easier and better. But aside from that, uh, I mean, really, that's the whole game. I don't want to get into like tiny minutia detail, even though I've gotten into a lot already. Uh, but I think what makes this game so much fun for me is immediately multi-use cards are fun, which means you have decision spaces. Do I use this to harvest? Do I use this for the recipe? Do I use this for the upgrade? I thought that was interesting right off the bat and gave you plenty of decision space uh, within the game. I also really like that it's a resource-based game, but being that you have a limited space for resources and that the resources that you gather are limited, uh, it just kind of made you think about, well, there's only two of those left in the field. Maybe I should go ahead and grab them so my opponent can't, but then I can't hold them. So then I'm giving my opponent some stuff and it starts to make you even think about that and Uh, I really liked just the way it presented these ideas and made you stop and think about your turns and how you want to move forward. The last thing that I really liked about it is whenever you make a beer or a bread, you can only make one beer or one bread before you have to clean your brewery or your bakery, which is essentially taking the upgrade action allows you to clean, quote unquote, which moves those cards off. And I also really enjoyed that because it prevents your opponent from saying, I'm going to make this beer. I'm going to make this beer. I'm going to make this beer and potentially cutting you out from being able to make any beer or something like that. It, uh, it actually makes it nice. Uh, the last thing that is important for that is that the way the in-game scoring works in this game is you will score all your points for your beer, all your points for your bread. Whichever category beer or bread is lowest is your final score. So you actually are only comparing your lowest score with your opponent's lowest score of those two categories. Unless you tie. In that case, Delton beat you by one point. Not by a point. I beat you by tiebreaker. I know. So basically what happened was we were tied and uh, 25 to 25. And so uh, I had compared, I think, my bread and you had compared your beer. And so being that we were tied, we then had to compare our other set 
and Delton's other set was one point higher than mine, so he won the tiebreaker. I really did. I won the tiebreaker. It was very close, and I only got the tiebreaker because I realized I had baked a bread, and at the end of the game, even if you haven't cleaned your storehouse or your, sorry, if you haven't cleaned your bakery or your brewery, you still get to count that bread that you've made because you've already effectively sold it or it wouldn't be there, and I had forgot to take it and count it into my bread, and uh, luckily that saved my butt. Yes, it did, and it ruined mine because I was going to win by like two points. She was. But uh, that, like Delton said, you know, you have to take the lowest number as your as your as your winning number, and so you can't just focus on bread. You can't just focus on beer because if you just focus on beer and only make beer, and you have zero in bread points, well, then you have zero points for the game, my friend. It's just really good. Like when we got done playing it, both of us really liked the game, and then the more I think about it, I. And I, I've said this on uh, I said this on Discord uh, about this game, but I honestly think this might be like one of my favorite games to come out in the past couple years. Yes, it's just it's a great box size. First off, the components are a rule book, a deck of cards, a small board, and the resource components. That's it. So you literally shuffle the deck, uh, set the components on the fields, and you're ready to go. Like it's a simple ready. setup. It's a simple game to play in terms of like actual how to play, which I mean, even, even not at a, even outside of that, it's not super complicated in the decision space. There's just a lot of good decision spaces. Yes. There are multi-use cards. There are multiple different things that you can do on your term and it really rewards efficiency. It really does. It's, it's a fantastic game though. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, without going into just more rules stuff, it's, I don't know. It's just really fun. I, I feel like I want to say more about it, but I don't know what else to say aside from I just really enjoyed the play. I found it super fun the whole 45 minutes or so that we played. And I'm excited to be able to play it again. Like this is one that has immediately shot up for me as just an awesome game for being such a small box, such a small package, but with such uh, such a well done production and design. It is beer and it's bread. It is beer and it's bread. It rewards efficiency. Yeah. It's a fun two player. Yeah. It has multi-use cards. Yeah. And it's a nice game. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So the topic for today, we wanted to discuss a little bit about positive player interaction. Because in Beer and Bread, one of our favorite things about it, at least one of my favorite things about it, was the fact that if you over-harvest or if your opponent over-harvests the fields, they must offer you the excess goods that they don't keep. And if you have room, you may keep those. And that, to me, is so awesome of a rule because, one, these are supposed to be friendly villages doing a friendly competition. And if you know anything about people who grow food and farm, you don't put stuff to waste. You don't let it go to waste if you can help it. Even if you have like a small garden in your backyard, if you have a plethora of squash, it's going to wind up in a Walmart sack tied to someone's front porch handle. 100% every time. And that's just how it is. And I loved that about this because one of the things I was concerned about, Haley was like, oh, I'm going to harvest and I'm going to harvest again and I'm going to harvest again. And I'm like, there's no barley left. How am I supposed to get any barley? And then Haley goes, hmm, well, I don't need this and I don't need that. So I guess here, do you want these? And it's like, oh, there's the barley I need, and I get to put it down in my little storehouse if I've got space. And it just felt so nice because it wasn't, your opponent wasn't just taking everything out of the fields and then punishing you. Now, if you had a full storehouse, technically that could be slightly punishing, 
but all you would have to do is make one recipe and boom, you've got space. Right. Because like the recipe cards, I think the smallest one had four. Yeah. And your house only kept nine. Now you could have extensions like Delton got up to 11. I think that's about as high as you can get. And so you make one recipe and half your space is cleared out. Yeah. It's uh, it's really nice because exactly four was the smallest on cards, but there were some cards that needed so like seven or eight. Yeah. One of mine needed seven for sure. And that's a lot of resources. That's almost everything. And you've got to be like making sure you have the exact amount you need. You have to have exactly, you know, three rye and two barley, one wheat, a water and a hop. And it's like, that's a lot. Like you have to be exact. You don't have room to just have a bunch of excess, which is where, like you said, it take that efficiency comes in. Yes. Efficiency and planning. But uh, we wanted to choose this topic because that's something that we really enjoyed about the game. Is something, and I, we're going to play the game again. We enjoyed it in general, but it was it was a nice, relaxing game. And I feel like you don't have a lot of two player games that don't feel like knife fights or you're at each other or you're trying to best each other. And yes, you're trying to win, but it was it was nice about it. And so another game that we really like that has some of these nice components is like Seven Wonders. So Seven Wonders, uh, whenever you lay your resources out in front of you, your neighbor to your left and neighbor to your right can pay to use your resources. And they, whenever they pay to use your resources, they give you a couple of coins for every resource that they use. And you're not losing any resource. Like that resource is just out in front of you. But you just you just profit. You gain money. They gain a resource. Nobody has to ask anything. No one can, can deny anything. And everybody wins. Exactly. And uh, that's that's why we wanted to talk about positive player interaction. Because player interaction is exactly that. It's how you interact with players. Uh, most games, a lot of times you hear the term take that. Take that games, that is a negative player interaction. It is, I am disrupting what you're doing. I'm taking something you've got. I'm giving you something bad. That kind of thing is, it's an, if it's a negative thing happening to you, you could consider that negative player interaction. And positive player interaction is just a way to feel better. You know, it's just a way to just make everyone feel better. And so one of the one of the examples that I liked, and this is obviously this is not a perfect example, but it's one that I was reading about one time back. I don't remember when it was now, but the example was uh, when designing a game. Let's say it's a two player game. I pick an action and it says Haley loses one coin, not even a coin. Let's do this. I pick an action. It says Haley loses one point or I can pick an action and I gain one point. One of those feels very negative. That is Haley losing a, a point that sucks she's like well dang it you made me lose a point you ass but if i did something and i just gain a point she's no longer upset that's not now gaining a point in that case is not really an interaction space however that you kind of see the point here and what i'm getting at is you want something that's not making somebody feel bad because you're taking something away or harming them in in, in some manner and so positive player interaction is just a positive version of player interaction and that's where passing those resources comes in. And that's where, like you said, with Seven Wonders is people are buying your resources, but they're not taking them. They're not hurting you. They're giving you coins to use your stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's just really nice. It's really nice. It's refreshing. And like you said, that like we humans have a huge risk aversion, if you will. And it's just really nice to be able to play a game where, I mean, there, there's not the risk aversion. You actually, you, you gain. It's yeah. nice. It's really, it it's really nice. It's real nice. One of the other games that we have on our little list, we made a little list here of games to talk about Maybe if the entire game's not positive, and there might be elements of each of these that isn't actually a positive interaction, there are still largely positive interactions, or at least a specific one. So one of the ones here uh, that I have on here is Hansa Teutonica. We've talked about before. Really like Hansa Teutonica. I just don't own the big box yet uh, because I think it's three to five players, and I've heard twos just okay. 
and we just don't play with three often enough for me to add another three-player minimum game to the shelf. Uh, however, uh, what I like about Hansa Teutonica is essentially you're placing people to, between cities and you're trying to ha have one of your people on every single city between two. So then you can end up putting one in like a local office in that city. That's the best way I can think I can explain it without having to redo that. And what I like about it is when you put a person down, you actually a lot of times put a person down blocking somebody in the hopes that they bump your person off of that spot. Because when they bump your person off, you don't just lose that spot. You get to put two people out on the board in adjacent areas, adjacent little tracks. That's fantastic. Because, like, yes, you're blocking them, and that's kind of like, ah, it's dummy. But what it is is their interaction of moving you out of there is actually benefiting you by letting you play two people. So if you play with that in mind, as we see Nick do a thousand times, it's very beneficial for you as a player. And that's one of those where it's like a positive interaction. It's like, yes, I'm moving you, but you know I'm moving you, and you want that benefit of getting two people out on the board. And so I, I would see that as mostly a positive player interaction. Absolutely. And, you know, another one, in, even though, like Delton said, this is not a game that's necessarily all positive, but another one is Nice Buttons. So in Nice Buttons, whenever it's your turn, you roll the dice, you split the dice. So there's three dice. We, we covered this on episode uh, 123. So says the computer door. 109. You're looking no. at the Excel column or row. 109. Rather than the episode. There you go. We covered this podcast on... Yeah, this podcast. We, we covered, covered nice buns on episode 109. 109, we covered nice buns. And if you are unfamiliar, if it is your turn, you roll the die. There are three different die with three different kinds of actions. You split the die. The person to your clockwise left will choose which one of the piles to take. And so I feel like it is a nice game. One, because it lets you, you even though your opponent is choosing which dice they're going to take, you technically always get a benefit. And also, there is one dice that forces you to give another player a uh, one of your buttons. And so sometimes that can be a stinky bun that you're giving, but a lot of times you don't have a stinky bun. You are required to give away a bun, and so you might be required to give somebody a red bun or a blue bun. And so it could inadvertently help them. And I would even say, like, not even just that certain dice action, but the fact that you're rolling dice and letting somebody else pick and then what they're picking is dictating what you get to do. In every case, what you get to do is technically a benefit. Yes. Except for certain cases where it's like giving away your only thing. But like that's a very positive interaction because you're not just rolling dice and going, ha ha, you have to lose the thing. It's like you get a choice here of what you want to choose to do, or I'm giving you the choice of what to do. And, you know, you can try to sway them by the way you manipulate the dice. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good one, too. Another one we have on the list here, I'm going to go to the bottom, is uh, in Concordia. Concordia, and I also brought up Boone Lake, but I can't remember the specific action in Boone Lake. But in Concordia, one of the cards, I think it's the Prefect card, uh, one of the cards basically says in whatever region, you're going to score, and or not score, but have all the houses or whatever produce goods. So no matter who is in that region, everyone there is producing a good. So technically, that is a player interaction because you're interacting with other players, but you're causing a positive thing. You're just most likely uh, getting the biggest benefit from doing that action. And Boone Lake has the same kind of thing where you're picking a thing and then doing, uh, essentially doing something where everyone benefits, but more than likely, if you're picking that, you are benefiting more than them. So again, it's a positive interaction. Yes. 
And so uh, Concordia, I can't really speak much on that because I think I played it once six years ago. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since I played it. But one that I can speak on is Flamme Rouge. And this is another one of those where not every single action is going to be beneficial to another player. But something I like about Flamme Rouge is that if somebody is in the lead, an opponent can drift behind them. And so with Flamme Rouge, you're drawing cards. So you have your deck of cards. Uh, you can play a seven to move seven spaces, a three to move three spaces, so on and so forth. And if you are in the lead, you are going fast, you are Ricky Bobbying it across that board, then your opponent can get behind you and they can go uh, at least a couple of spaces quicker because they are drifting behind you. And so it doesn't necessarily shoot them in front of the lead person, but it does help out the opponent a bit. Drafting. Drafting. What did I say? Drifting. Drifting. I can car. <laughs> Those are bicycles. <laughs> it's oh, Fast God. and Furious 3, Tokyo Draft. Ugh. Fast and Furious, pedal to the metal. And it's bicycles. Me. Yeah, we got it. Uh, one of the other games we have on here is Isle of Sky. Isle of Sky has a nice player interaction because uh, instead of just drawing tiles at random to play in your little area or whatever, you are setting the cost of these tiles as well as trashing one secretly. That way, uh, once you reveal it, your opponents have the option to buy those tiles. So you're not taking something from somebody you're not trying to fight for something or trying to outbid each other for a tile for the most part. You're setting a cost, and sometimes you set the cost so high that they can't buy it. But all in all, I think that's a very positive uh, interaction as well. Absolutely. And the last one that I have is one of my new favorites as well, another two-player game. That is Land versus Sea. And Land versus Sea, we covered this one on... Da, 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 don't tell me. Don't tell me. Wait, have we not covered it? No, I see it right there. Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, math 134. There you go. Episode 134. You are It's a two-player game or a four-player game or a three-player game. We played it two and four. But you're basically, one side is land, one side is sea. It's a tile placement game. You're wanting to enclose your little land, make an island so that way you can get points. And the same thing with the sea. You enclose it to make a little uh, fully enclosed lake and you get points there. However, it does reward other players. So let's say that Delton is land and I am sea. I might be... Uh, incentivized to make his land close because if I close up his land uh, he might get the points for his land but I get the points for all of the X's inside of that land. So there's X marks a spot on land and something else X, X's it, in water. It's just a white X in the water. The white X in the water. So whoever closes up a land or closes up a sea is the one who gets the points for those X's no matter what. And so both of us get points, both of us win, but I win. Yeah. It is. A, I mean, it's like, yes, you're cutting somebody off, but you're giving them those points, but you're also receiving points in doing so. So it incentivizes both of you to cut them off early, let them have those points, and you still get a benefit for doing so, making it where they're not just building up forever, and then you're not just expanding their thing forever and no one getting a benefit from it, which can right. also happen. Because you can just yeah. expand somebody's land or sea forever, and so they can never close it, thus never get the points for it. But why not you both get points? Exactly. It's more fun that way. Uh, and then the last one on mine, because I couldn't find a better example, even though I have one in my head, I just don't know what it is, is I have on here Lords of Waterdeep, uh, which is a worker placement game, D&D universe, uh, kind of a classic worker placement now. It's been around a long time. But essentially, you have buildings that you can make, and your opponents can use those, and then you get a bonus for them using it. That's a perfect example of positive player interaction. Is I'm using your building, you're getting a benefit from it, but I still get the action. No one is being harmed in the making of this action. Amen. So that's that. But yeah, so that's that's kind of our thing on player interaction, positive player interaction. We may have gotten something wrong somewhere. Maybe we're looking at it weirdly, but 
If it feels good to do it and no one's harmed in the making of that action, that is a positive player interaction. Lots of games do it. Lots of games avoid it and do only negative interactions. But positive ones for me, uh, it can make or break a game if it does a lot of positive player interaction versus a lot of negative player interaction. Because a game that's just a lot of take that of you hurting me and you interrupting my flow and you doing all this shit to me, I'm not going to have a great time. But if you give me a game where the actions that I take benefit you sometimes or you take an action that benefits me sometimes, that's going to feel a lot better. And I'm more likely to play that. You're just more likely to play this one because you won. That too. And it's beer and bread. Speaking of beer and bread, we had bread for dinner. I made rolls today. We did, but we have one more beer for this episode before we move into the question. And the beer de la episode is Fat Tire. We chose Fat Tire because one, we had it in the refrigerator. Thank you, Cody, for leaving behind the Fat Tire and the Sapporo. And two, because they are changing up the recipes, so we got to review this one while we can. So Fat Tire is from New Belgium, which is up out of Colorado and Fort Collins. It is an amber ale. Uh, this is enjoyed by the 26th of March of 23. Well, we're doing it right now. It was established the year we were born in 91. It's a good That's year. That's cool. It is a 12 fluid ounce bottle. Alcohol uh, by volume is 5.2%. It's just a classic amber ale. And yes, they are changing the recipe. I don't know by how much. I don't know if they're changing it from an amber. I think they're changing it to a different style. Just a different style? I think general? it's supposed to be, I, I, I don't want to lie to you, but I think it's something like a lager or something. That would be interesting. Yeah, it would be. Don't forget, I get more beer this time. I know. I'm watching you. Give me your glass. As you can tell, it is super clear. If you put your eye up to it, you can see everything as usual and pretty damn clearly, too. And it smells, smells, smells like a really good beer. You can tell that little bit of amber, tiny bit of toastiness in there. Mm -hmm. It's a good ale. Mm. It smells sweet. There is. There's a little bit of maltiness. It's not very hoppy. I haven't had one of these in so long that I forget in general. Like this, for the longest time, this was like, this is craft beer. It was the Holy Grail because- For a long time. We could not get it in Oklahoma because they only shipped to states that allowed refrigeration of their beer. And Oklahoma, until 2019, would not allow you to sell cold beer that was above 3% alcohol. We had no cold storage. No cold storage. And so we were only were able to get this. I remember the first time we got it, we were on an airplane. We were going to- uh, our honeymoon in Portland, and we got on Southwest, and they said, oh, we have Fat Tire, and we're like, oh, we're buying Fat Tire in Oklahoma, egad, and we got yeah. one, it was like an $8 beer, but it was worth it, and then I remember the day that the liquor laws changed in Oklahoma, and I walk into the liquor store that day, and there's a whole stack of Fat Tire, and I bought two, and that was literally the first beer that I bought in Oklahoma when the liquor laws changed. Yep, it's it's a great, solid, classic beer. Uh. It's nothing super fancy and nothing like that, but it's just, if you want a simple amber that's super tasty and easy to drink, it's it's Fat Tire. It'll get you drunk. It really will. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do, but it's also kind of sad because it's been around forever, but I do think, I don't think a change is a negative thing. No, and I'm sure that they'll keep this recipe around in some sense or another. Of course. But I like Fat Tire. So far, so good. And I think it's time to do the question of the episode, Delty Poo. Yeah. And now, join us for a Malt House Games podcast special bite-sized question. So the question of the episode is, what is your favorite beer experience and favorite bread experience? So not necessarily your favorite beer or bread, but what is your favorite experience revolving around beer and revolving around bread? I don't know. I don't know. I have my bread one. 
What's your bread one? My bread one was at the beginning of the pandemic. Delton said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to make bread. And he made the most beautiful bread I've ever had in my life. First try. I I was making bread before the pandemic. Was it That's before when the pandemic? I, it was oh, like yeah. 2018. It was like 2018. Whatever. He he goes to make a loaf of bread. I'm going to make a loaf of bread. Holy snap. That is the most beautiful artisan bread I've ever had in my life. I'm going to make a shellah. Oh, my God. That's the most beautiful artisan bread I've ever had in my life. I'm going to make a English muffin. Oh, my God. That's the most beautiful, delicious piece one of bread I've ever had in my English life. English muffin. <laughs> it was so good. If it was just one, I would have been done because I was in heaven. It was delicious. So my favorite experience was discovering that Delton had this weird, innate ability to make bread turn out perfectly and deliciously sure. every time. It was good. I haven't made bread in a long time because it takes so much time, but it's fun. In terms of bread, I don't know that I have a favorite bread experience. Maybe it's just making bread and actually having something come out correct. Because when I, I feel like more often than not, I make bread and I go, eh, this isn't right. But when it comes out, I'm like, this is where it's at. It just feels nice. So maybe that's that. But I do have a favorite beer experience. What's your favorite beer experience? I'm going to say my favorite beer experience was doing one of the group brewing days at uh, Dr. Law's because we made 50 gallons of beer in two separate 25-gallon batches, and all of us got to bring home five gallons of that beer. And hot damn, that was such a good, it was like a winter ale. It was George Washington's ale, the one that was made with brown sugar. Uh, yes, I think that's correct. And it had, because it had coriander, it had some orange peel in it. We had, I can't think of which all malts we used, but man, it was so good. And I got it home and I got my keg filled with it and I dry hopped it with Fugel hops. And uh, Fugel or Fugel, I think it's Fugel hops, are like a very earthy hop. And man, mm, delicious. It was such a good beer. But being able to like sit and brew it was Dr. Law's beer batch number 400 something, I think, or 500 something. Like it was a lot. It's several, several hundred beers he's brewed in his life. And it was four or 500, somewhere in there. But getting to watch someone who knows what they're doing, do it. And also like, you know, you always learn all these little things and it makes it sound so daunting. And then you see it done and you're like, oh, that's not that bad. You know, everything's clean. Take a few precautions, but it was nice and simple, but it was super fun. It was just a great day. We started at like seven eight in the morning and we were done at like 6 p.m with cleanup so it was an, an all-day thing but it was awesome it was delicious too what about yours so my favorite experience there we go is i'm gonna say whenever i was going to bonnaroo so bonnaroo was my first like trip i took as an adult by myself like without a you know a class taking us without a parent or a guardian of some sort and so my friends and i well, my friend and I, and then one person I just literally met that morning, uh, was a friend of a friend. Like, we got in my car, and we drove from Elk City, Oklahoma, all the way to Memphis, Tennessee, stayed the night at a $50 a night hotel that uh, they said, if you pay in cash and leave by 7, we'll only pay you 50 bucks, we'll only have to charge you 50 bucks. I said, okay, we did that. And then we drove into Bonnaroo the next day. So Bonnaroo is in Manchester, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. And so first time I've, I've traveled that far first i traveled that far by myself first trip in general without any kind of other parents like i've taken i had taken trips of course but like my parents were always there yeah even whenever i was in my early 20s and so we get there we are pitching a tent and it's hotter than hell because it is june in the sum it's so it's summertime in tennessee so it was muggy it is hot we've been in a car for hours and hours and hours 
we're setting up our tent. Uh, our neighbors are, you know, these guys in a truck from Alabama and we're chatting with them. And one of them throws me a Bud Light. And I had never, that was, that was like the very first time I had like my own beer. Like I'd had like drinks of beer before. I'd, of course, I'd had like wine before with the family. Like drinking was, I'm not going to say encouraged, but it was like kind of open to my family. But I'd never had it's my- It's encouraged, but go ahead. It's encouraged. Like, well, now it's peer pressured because alcoholism is a, is a, is a trait, is a personality trait. And sometimes my family, but anyway, uh, I got the the Bud Light, and I I realized I had never had like my own beer that like my grandma didn't pour me a little bit, my dad didn't pour me a little bit, and so I opened it and I drank it. It tastes terrible. I think I had one more beer that weekend because we ran out of water, and I didn't drink anything else all weekend. Uh, but and that's what I really thought beer tasted like was just terrible for like uh, until I met Delton or got with Delton. But yeah, I remember that it was kind of like the mark of independence. Like I took this trip on myself. I rented my first hotel room by myself. Probably shouldn't have. It was a sketchy ass place. But I got my first beer by myself. And like that's that's the one that I think about. I can see that. Just that's being that that one first moment of like, ah, yeah, I'm an adult. I'm an adult. I felt that was the first <laughs> time I think I felt like an adult. I could see that. I could see that. So yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Never want to do Bonnaroo. Sounds terrible. Oh, it was great. Anyway. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Malt House Games podcast. Uh, this was episode number 137. I want to give a great shout out to our Patreon patrons. If you want to be like them, you can head over to patreon.com slash malthousegames, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S games. The amazing patrons that back us on a level in which they get shouted out on the podcast pow- pow- on the podcast are Alan, Jennifer, and Cliff. Thank you so much for supporting. There are other patrons like them that support at different levels, but they are the special ones at the level in which they get a shout out. You can always go check that out. If there is a game you think we need to look at, a beer you think we need to find, a question to answer, or a topic to cover that you want us to cover, you can always send an email to contact at malthousegames.com. You can always find us on all social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. You can always find me on my personal at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K, but I really never use those ever anymore. It's just podcast page for everything. Uh, but yeah, I think that's basically it. Uh, we're going to, if you, you can't tell unless you're watching the Patreon video, which generally comes out sometime before the next episode but that's it's not on a schedule uh i have organized my shelves a different way because i have done a cull of games they're all on the floor you really can't see them uh but we're going to be trying to do some sort of small video about the games we culled why we culled them what they are things like that but yes we did a cull all that good stuff we're going to be going out to see riley this weekend and hanging out and lake and bacon and so we've got some stuff going on. Uh, make sure to follow us on social media. We'll be able to see, post pictures of games we play, things like that for your entertainment. But I think that's going to wrap everything up. Thank you again so much for tuning in to the Malthouse Games podcast. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Bye. Bye. Bye.